hammer. I'm seeking representation. The jaded lawyer with no respect for the law. Innocent people can't afford me. The truth stays with us. Would you accept a client if you were constantly thinking, I don't want this person to touch me? I have a case. There's nothing to prove he did anything. In this country, you do not speak. Your job is just to sit there and look innocent. Do you have any other questions for me, counselor? I had a job in a defense plan. I could have taken a deferment. Sir, I know the law, and I know my son is protected by those laws. They're framed in our Constitution. Your Honor, I'd like to ask for a recess. I'd like an answer to the question, Judge. The court will wait for an answer. Welcome to Uncommon Law with former Luzerne County District Attorney and former Luzerne County Judge Peter Paul Olszewski. Peter is a managing partner in his law firm, Scartelli Olszewski, with his wife, Melissa Scartelli. Peter, you've had a fascinating career as an attorney, a DA, a judge, and now coming full circle as a partner in a very successful law firm. But I would like to go back for just a moment and ask you, when you were a young DA, was there a time or a case that everyone else had kicked to the curb and you said, no, this case deserves another look? Uh, that clearly would have been the Keith Schneider murder case. Um, Keith Snyder was, uh, was somebody who was suspected of murdering his uh, 24-year-old wife and 36-day-old son um, back in 1981. The case, uh, I became DA in 1992, so the case was 11 years old uh, when I took office. And Snyder had been investigated, uh, but the prior DAs just didn't think there was sufficient evidence to to convict him. Um, I reopened the case, um, thought it was interesting and thought we might have a shot. Uh, I put together a special task force of county detectives, the local police chief, and the Pennsylvania State Police. Um, and we, we all reviewed the file. Um, we had to locate um, 15 to 20 witnesses um, who were part of the initial investigation. Um, and some of those witnesses who were fairly important, unfortunately, had died, which presented additional problems. Um, the, the motive was always suspected that he had a girlfriend, and, uh, but that can never be proven. So we went to work on that, and we found a girlfriend. And um, after we found a girlfriend, we also, uh, I then hired Michael Bodden, um, the world's premier forensic pathologist, um, to help on the, um, the cause of death issue. What Snyder did was uh, um, he had given his wife a number of um, uh, sleeping pills, and, uh, which caused her uh, to fall asleep in the bed bedroom of their home. Uh, he put the, their, their little 36-day-old son in bed with her and then took a, uh, a gallon tank of a mixture of gas and oil that you would use in a chainsaw, for example, and, made a tr uh, and, and poured a significant part of that gas and oil mixture in the bedroom and then made a trail uh, through the house to the back door. And uh, he lit the trail of gas, uh, gas and oil mixture uh, it burned a little slower than normal gas because of the oil. Um, the house went up, and uh, when the fire, fire department arrived, it was a volunteer fire department, they put the fire out, and uh, Diane Snyder and their, their son were found dead in the bed of the master bedroom. 
Um, there were no eyewitnesses. Um, the case was 11 years old. Um, Snyder was uh, an accepted member of the community. He had many friends. Uh, he, he worked as a manager uh, of a local department store. Uh, he worked on a race team that did races um, at the Giants Despair Hill Climb. Uh, pretty popular guy in Mountaintop. Um, so we went to work. We went after him. And uh, I thought there was enough to convict him, so I arrested him. Um, he was denied bail. Uh, I, could not, I could not ask for a death penalty because the law was different in 1981 than it was in 1993. Um, and um, uh, we had a two-and-a-half, almost three-week jury trial in Luzerne County. Uh, Snyder was represented by uh, two of the best trial lawyers in Pennsylvania, Charlie Gelso and, and uh, John Moses. Um, and after three weeks, the jury came back with uh, finding him guilty of two counts of first-degree murder, 11 years after it happened. Okay, so how did the family react when you landed a conviction after all this time? Well, they were, they were thrilled. Her mother was still alive at the time. And uh, the, family, the family, of course, was very supportive and, and, uh, and thrilled. Um, we had great people working on the case. We had great investigators. I had a great fire marshal uh, out of the Pennsylvania State Police Troop, Ben Hazelton. And uh, he did a super job for us. Um, we made multiple trips to New York City to meet with Mike Bodden. Um, and um, one of the problems with the case um, was showing what the, what the cause of death was. Initially, um, they suspected it was simply carbon monoxide poisoning, but uh, we were able to, to prove definitively that she had been given uh, the sleeping agents uh, prior to, um, prior to the, the smoke inhalation. So it was... Um, it was a very scientific type of case, both in terms of the cause and manner of death, as well as a scientific case in showing how this fire occurred, why it was slow burning, what, what allowed the house to burn as much as it did before the fire department was even called. So it was, um, it was a real scientific-based uh, type of case, and um, we won. What makes you take on a case like this, a case that everyone else abandoned? When I took office in January of uh, 19, 1992, um, we had an opening in our detective division. We, I had 50 people, 50 police officers apply for a county detective's position. And ultimately, I hired um, a retired state trooper by the name of Jack Halivia. He was a criminal investigator from, from Hazleton State Police. And... Um, Jack was one of the initial investigators on the case when it occurred back in 19, June of uh, 81. And uh, he always uh, suspected and, and really knew uh, intuitively that, that Keith Snutter was responsible for those two murders and um, was never happy that he was unable to, never happy that he was able to, to put together a case uh, and to charge him. So after I hired Jack as, as a new county detective, he told me about the case. I, I had not even heard about it. I was in law school in 1981. Um, so um, 
we dug the file out of the archives and uh, read it, and it was as compelling as uh, he thought it would be. And we put together the team, and off we went. When you're looking at an 11-year-old case, how do you even start? Do you have an idea of how you're going to approach this case? I think it changes on the specific uh, the nature of the case itself. Uh, we knew that we, we knew that while the Commonwealth never has to prove what the motive is, we thought if we could prove a motive and show a motive, it would be very helpful to a jury. Uh, and obviously, if we could if we could prove that he in fact had a girlfriend and wanted to get rid of his wife for the girlfriend, um, that would be a powerful statement. So we put we put one group of detectives and assigned them to to that task. Uh, we took another group of detectives and assigned them the task of finding all the witnesses that we did have uh, back in June of 81. Where were they? Many of them had moved into to different parts of the state and in different states. We had to find those people. Um, we then had to refresh their recollections. Memories are short. And, and for people to recall and recollect details that were important to the case um, was something that had to be looked at. So we did that. And um, there was never a good explanation uh, about her death, about the carbon monoxide only. So um, that's why we went to Michael Bodden and, uh, and got him out of New York City. Um, it, uh, it was uh, Dr. George Hudak, who was our county coroner, who did the, the initial autopsy. And Dr. Hudak was still around and he testified, but we needed somebody with world-class experience. And that's why we got Michael. And um, uh, I think we... We, we broke it into those different components and brought everybody together. Um, and then it was, you know, it was tenuous. It wasn't, certainly wasn't the strongest case in the world. Um, and so, are we going to give it a shot and, uh, or not? And certainly I didn't want to lose. I didn't want to arrest somebody for first-degree murder and then lose the case. Um, I don't want to lose any case, but certainly not a case like that. What led you to contact Michael Bodden? Did you like know about him beforehand? Did he have a reputation that led you to him? That was actually the first case I had with Michael. Um, I learned I, I learned about him really through through going to some seminars uh, and being familiar with with him speaking. Um, so uh, I met him and we struck up a good a good professional relationship and candidly we're personal friends today. Um, he then, after, uh, after that Snyder case, which was my first case working with him, um, I brought him in to work on the, the infamous uh, Joanne Curley thallium poisoning case. Michael and I worked on all those cases together. Um, we also worked on um, the, the murder of a, of a three-year-old girl in South Wilkesbury, um, and um, I ended up charging the, the defendant with first-degree murder and actually getting um, the last death penalty in the history of Luzerne County. Uh, that defendant's name was Michael Bardo, B-A-R-D-O. And um, Bardo sexually assaulted this girl, uh, this little three-year-old girl, and then after he sexually assaulted her, he killed her by strangulation. And in order to... to, to, to to, to have a shot at the death penalty, I had to show that that was a form of torture. Uh, strangulation doesn't occur in five seconds or ten seconds. That actually takes about three minutes 
um, with a lot of pain and suffering that are involved in that three-minute pan. And, and Baden had just a super way of explaining that to a jury that everybody understood that. So we, um, we took a chance. I actually turned it down in that prior to trial. I actually turned down a proposed guilty plea uh, to first-degree murder. And uh, that case could have come back third-degree murder. And I, I had given up a, a potential plea to first-degree murder. So there was a lot, of, a lot of pressure in that case. Okay, back to the Keith Snyder murder case for a moment. You mentioned attorney John Moses and attorney Charlie Gelso before. Uh, they both had pretty good reputations as defense attorneys, right? Gelso was the brains behind the unit, behind that operation. He was, he was the guy. Moses was, was somebody who sat on the sidelines and, and, and helped, but he had a big reputation. Um, but Gelso had the brains. Gelso had the ability in the courtroom. was just a terrific trial lawyer. Their strategy was trying to, to, to show um, that Keith Snyder was not the person who lit the fire, who, who laid the trail and lit the fire. Uh, it was essentially an alibi defense where they tried to show they knew what time he got to work in, Hazel, in Hazleton um, at the department store. He was a supervisor. And um, they tried to establish that um, there's no way he could have been at work and the fire department not be called um, that, that the delay in lighting the fire and then getting to work before the big explosion was impossible. So they hired, uh, they hired a couple hotshot fire experts, um, professional fire engineer, as well as a former fire marshal, and um, uh, tried to show the jury that Keith Snyder couldn't possibly have been at the house at the time the fire was lit because he was at in Hazleton, 25 minutes away from Mountaintop. So, as the jurors were entering the courtroom right before the verdict was about to be read, what was going through your mind at that moment? I think, uh, I, think I was a little pessimistic about what the verdict was gonna be. They, the, the, the jury was out a relatively short time. And, and typically when there's a, a, a quick decision in a criminal case, it, it's, it often leads to a not guilty verdict. Um, but not this time. So we, uh, uh, the jury didn't believe anything. They didn't believe Snyder at all. They didn't believe the defense experts. They didn't believe the defense lawyers. And, um, and, and it went, went by the wayside. But actually, one of the biggest fights in the case came after the conviction. Um, because once Snyder was sentenced to two consecutive life sentences in prison, um, his lawyers appealed to the Supreme Court of Pennsylvania on the basis that um, an 11-year delay in prosecuting a case was a violation of due process. And um, they initially appealed to the Superior Court, and, and we prevailed. The convictions were affirmed. They then went to the Supreme Court uh, of Pennsylvania, and um, at the time, Moses, Moses had been appointed to impeached Justice Rolf Larson. So he had some relationships on the bench. And when the oral argument took place, uh, the Chief Justice um, questioned me um, ferociously, cross-examined me 
about how dare I bring a prosecution after 11 years. And in fact, I, <laughs> I recall after the argument, um, I turned to the assistant DA who was with me and I said, Scott, if I didn't know better, you think I killed those people. That's the way I was treated by the Chief Justice of Pennsylvania. And, um, but at the end of the day, there were seven justices on the court and the convictions were affirmed. Peter, I can see on your face that this case, after all this time, still brings back a lot of raw emotion. How did you feel at that time knowing that you had accomplished something pretty extraordinary for the victim and, of course, for the family? Well, it was pretty cool, you know. know? Um, It's hard enough to get uh, a murder conviction at any time. And to be able... Uh, to be able to get two first-degree convictions in a case that was uh, 11 years old, where the evidence was insufficient uh, immediately uh, to charge the guy. Um, not everybody can do that. And, uh, and then, um, so to do that was, was uh, a pretty significant legal accomplishment. And then, Two years later, to, to prosecute another another one that was 12 years old, unsolved, and to get a first degree conviction in that, um, I don't know any I don't know any uh, district attorneys in Pennsylvania who were able to successfully do two cold cases uh, in in that manner. As somebody who has really been on all sides of the law, you have probably seen it all. Uh, is your goal always to see that justice is always served? I don't know if I've seen it all. I've seen a lot. Um, but um, I, think, uh, I think as a prosecutor, um, before you sign the complaint and make the arrest, ethically you have to believe that you could secure the conviction and prove the defendant guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. Um, and uh, even in those difficult cases. So, so the goal, the goal is, is to do justice, but in those cases, clearly the goal was a conviction. Um, I think now, as, uh, as defense counsel, um, you look at each case differently, you evaluate the evidence, the case, the prosecution, the lawyers, and... Um, you represent your client to the best of your ability. Um, a lot of times the Commonwealth makes mistakes. A lot of times the, the Commonwealth um, doesn't proceed appropriately. They're sloppy. Sometimes prosecutors aren't prepared and you win cases. Um, other times you win cases because your client is innocent and he was wrongly accused and he was wrongly arrested and he was wrongly prosecuted. And you win cases because he was, he's an innocent person. When you have a guy who's been um, on the front page of the newspaper for weeks on end, when you have somebody who's been on um, the 6 o'clock news for weeks on end, when he's accused of um, vicious uh, acts, heinous acts, um, and you know in your heart of hearts that he never did those things, Um, when the jury says not guilty, 
that's, that's just as good as being a prosecutor when they say guilty. Peter, thank you for sharing uh, this fascinating story with us. And I cannot wait to hear the next one. And hopefully our audience will join us again real soon for the next episode of The Hammer. We hope that until then, you stay out of trouble. 